Welcome to This Week in Intelligent Investing, where we examine timely and timeless investment topics to help you become a better investor. Enjoy authentic, unscripted discussion featuring Chris Bloomstrand, Phil Ordway, Elliot Turner, and other thought-leading investors. Brought to you by MOI Global. And now, here is your host, John Mihaljevic. A very warm welcome, everyone, listening to This Week in Intelligent Investing. I'm happy to uh, bring you this episode, which we're recording uh, right ahead of uh, Thanksgiving. So I want to wish everyone listening a happy Thanksgiving as well. Today uh, with me are uh, Phil Ordway and Elliot Turner. And we're going to start with Elliot. Uh, So let's launch right into it. Go ahead, Elliot. All right. Thanks, John. Hello, everyone. Um, Once again, have some great questions from a listener. This time, Luis Sanchez asks, uh, what are your favorite questions to ask management? What are good frameworks to evaluate their answers? And do you guys speak to non-management industry experts? How do you approach those calls? And then what is your approach to getting up to speed on a brand new company or industry? Order of operations in the research process. How do you know when something new is worth digging deeper into? Um, so, you know, I'll try to tackle, I think there's kind of a connection between questions two and three in a way. Um, but, you know, I really thought these were some good questions to talk about in light of our last few conversations. So, um, and I think all of us will have some interesting, unique input here. Um, in terms of my favorite questions to ask management, one of my favorites is when you know management has a specific goal, I like to ask them what the biggest hurdle to achieving that goal is and what the biggest bottleneck of that goal is to kind of exceed it and go farther. So sometimes it's like, you know, what what's your biggest bottleneck to growing faster if management's goal is, you know, we want to grow like mid-teens or something like that. Um, and oftentimes what they're really telling you is what their biggest constraints are, you know, whether it's capital, whether it's hiring the right people, whether it's acquiring customers, et cetera. So when you know their biggest constraints and you know their biggest weaknesses in a lot of ways, um, you're able to understand the company a little better. So I find that to be a really helpful, important question to ask. And there's always some sort of natural spot to ask that um, in, in the interview. One of my other favorite questions to ask is after you've had a pretty good conversation and as you know, time's winding down, I like asking uh, management if there's anything I'm not asking that I should be thinking about. And you know, nine out of 10 times they're like, okay, you asked really good questions. I don't think there's anything else. But that one out of 10 times where they do come up with something and there's something on their mind, you get some really interesting answers. I remember one time I was speaking to a company, to the CFO of a company. And he's like, you know, one thing that you didn't ask about was our own ownership of the stock. And let me tell you, I put my entire 401k into our own stock. And just about every incremental dollar I get, I invest in my own stock. And that was totally unsolicited and wasn't really like related to anything in the conversation. And we could have hung up the phone before then. Like he wasn't necessarily ready to beat the drum on that. But because I asked for anything else, and let him kind of like search his own mind for what he wanted to say. That came out and I was like, okay, this is an interesting insight. I'm going to buy the stock. Um, you know, so you never know what you're going to get from an answer uh, in that particular case. You know, oftentimes when they do have an answer, I find it to be more along the lines of, um, you know, everyone thinks about us this way, but you should really think about us that way. And it's something that in theory could have come across through, you know, any question along the way, but like, it's something that, that lingers with whoever at the company uh, you're speaking to. Um, as for speaking to non-management uh, industry experts, I think that's one of the most important things that I do when I get to know a company. So when I want to get up to speed on a company or brand, I really need to talk to someone who's like truly familiar with the purchasing decision of the customer. If I don't understand the customer's intents and I don't understand like the kind of menu of options they're facing when they pick a given company to do business with, um, then I really don't think I could ever understand that company at all. Um, So I really want to understand how their their customers in particular. So like, especially, you know, in in certain things where I'm the customer, I have a much better sense. I've spoken to my peer group, et cetera. I, I have a keen sense of how it's going. But in certain areas, like, I mean, when you talk about an industrial or certain, um, 
technical services where I'm definitely not going to be a customer. I, I have to understand that. I also want to understand what suppliers think of the company because I want to. Uh, we've talked about you know stakeholders and taking care of stakeholders as a company, so that's something that's really important. I, wa- I want to know and I want to talk about those things, and that's a big part of my process of getting up to speed in a given industry. So that's kind of the answer to the third question as well. So eager to hear what you guys think and do uh, in these same areas, and then we could you know see where where this goes. Yeah, it's a great question. I think. Uh... A couple of questions I would add that I always try to work into any conversation with management is I try to warm them, warm them up slowly and make them realize that, you know, this is friendly and not adversarial. And that I'm certainly not there trying to get any sort of read on the quarter or any sort of short term stuff because that's just not my angle. And I want them to understand that this isn't hopefully a uh, typical call that they that they probably have to knock out five a day if it's a big company or something like that. So I really want them to understand where I'm coming from. Uh, So I do spend some time sort of walking them through what I'm hoping to get out of it. And then I really want to make whoever it is, whether it's the investor relations person or the CEO or whatever, uh, I really want to make them feel like I'm genuinely respectful of their time and thoughts and opinions because I think that really helps. I think it's amazing to me how many times an investor or an analyst will call up management and just be frankly very disrespectful of their time and not have done their homework and ask very basic questions that are you know factual that are readily available somewhere else like in the filings or in the company's investor relations site so uh, once I sort of get through all that you know there's kind of a couple of questions maybe three that I'll make sure that I always ask one is that you know if we were to take the company private just you and me or if you owned as the CEO or the management team, if you owned 100% of it privately, what would you do differently? And that tends to be a catch-all because it really captures all kinds of different things. So it, it can point out the real strengths of the business. It can point out the real weaknesses of the business. It can lead down a rabbit hole of, well, I'd get rid of these people. I'd sell that division. I'd do this differently. I'd do that differently. Every once in a while, you get kind of People often are surprised by that question. You'll get some really bizarre answers like, oh, well, I'd never thought about that before. And you just kind of get stymied. Uh, Every once in a while, you'll get a genuine answer that, um, well, I think the company's so well run. There's nothing I would change. A lot of times that's disingenuous, but sometimes they really mean it. So that, that to me is probably one of my favorite. The other favorite question I would have right in that top two would be, um, you know, which competitor keeps you up at night? or a version of Buffett's, you know, if you had a silver bullet to kill one competitor, who would it be and why? That just sort of gets right to the the core of the competitive issue. Um, So for a truly great company, you know, I think it would point out very honestly that there might not be anybody to worry about. But if it's a, you know, tougher industry, um, it can get you focused on what really matters and what you should be worried about. Because if any CEO is being honest, there's at least some competitor out there that's causing some anxiety. Uh, some trend, some issue. And again, you can sort of tweak that if it's not an individual company, sort of what one issue, one competitive problem, one new product development issue, whatever that is. And then the third thing is exactly what Elliot said. I always like to ask at the very end, all right, you know, I'm, I I try to sort of play dumb even if I'm not and just say, what have I missed? Um, You know, please steer me in the direction of, of the question that I missed here. And, And again, I get some fascinating answers to that too. So I think that's a great one. Yeah, I'll just uh, jump in with a few thoughts. Um, basically, I'm not necessarily a huge fan of talking to management uh, because they're obviously great salespeople. So at the very least, I like to have a preliminary thesis before ever talking to management and um, and and also just listening a lot uh, to them talk, whether that's on earnings calls on or, or uh, you know, presentations, events, um, where I really listen to what they're focusing on. Because if I have my own preliminary thesis, I kind of have my own focus as well um, in terms of what needs to happen for that thesis to work out. And if management is focusing on something completely different, I feel like either I'm really wrong with how I'm thinking about this or they're focused on the wrong things. So it just helps uh, before ever even talking to management. Uh, When I do talk to management, often 
capital allocation for me is a big topic. And in the past, I've been quite frustrated um, with managements that blindly reinvest in their business, even if it's a low return on incremental capital business. And, you know, historically, that's been a default with a lot of companies to just think we're we're in this business and we're just going to keep investing in this business, regardless of whether that business is becoming less attractive over time. Uh, So I just want to hear coherence on that question of capital allocation. And if you're in a low return business, it can still be a great investment if management is uh, returning capital, let's say, uh, or doing other things that will enhance value. And that question that both of you guys, or, or Phil, you focused on, which is who is your toughest competitor, definitely something I love to ask because it it generates new ideas often. Um, and another question that for me is really relevant because I um, look at a lot of companies that might get disrupted is just how they think about technology or innovation-based disruption uh, so that they're going to be around um, for for some time to come. Um, and then lastly, I'll just mention what I like to do in terms of getting up to speed on an industry um, is just listening to the earnings calls of all the companies in that industry. And, and that usually helps uh, to get a lay of the land. So um, not sure. Just one question to both of you guys that, that I have is, how do you find uh, industry experts to talk to? Well, I'll go first because I want to respond real quickly to something you said, which I think is really important. Uh, and this touches back on several things we've talked about before, which is the order of research. And so I'm with you, John, that talking to management is a double-edged sword at best. And so I don't want to do it when I don't think there's something I have in, in mind that can be gained from it. And so I only want to do it at the very end or toward the very end of the process where I've already formed enough fact-based opinions from things that are out there in the world that don't come from the CEO or the internal kind of sales machine, like you said. I mean, this goes back to Ben Graham, obviously, where he just didn't see much need for it. I think the differentiating take I have on it is is that particularly as you get to a a senior executive or just any sort of operating executive would be just that I want to hear their perspective on the business. And if you're taking the business first approach to investing, you really would want to sit down with anyone you could get to in the in the company and say, would I want to partner with this person? So that's really the type of conversation I'm trying to have. I mean, again, I, I will have fact-based conversations to try to clarify things I don't understand with someone in investor relations, maybe, or the CFO or the treasurer. But um, I, I think that's a, that's a great point, John, that you don't want to just go into this and say, you know, hey, Mr. or Mrs. CEO, like, tell me everything I need to know. And then it just turns into the ultimate sales job where they just end up whistling past the graveyard and telling you all the good things, ignoring all the bad things. And you come out with this false confidence about how great things are. So I think that's something really important to keep in mind. As for your your second question, I think I do spend probably more time talking to people that aren't directly involved than than those that are directly involved, just because you get a more honest uh, picture of, of what's actually happening. So I make liberal use of LinkedIn, but I would say even more than that, I probably make uh, liberal the most liberal use of just my own personal network. So there are just industries um, and geographies where I at least almost immediately in every case have an idea for one or two people I should email or call. And even if it's not a first degree of separation, it's at most two or three where somebody can get me in touch with exactly who I want to talk to. Um, Sometimes that person doesn't end up being responsive. Sometimes they're not available. You obviously want to be very careful to not uh, cross any lines there and and certainly, or even just, you know, informally step on any toes. But um, I think it's, Absolutely crucial to talk to people that work for competitors, work for suppliers, vendors, people that used to work at the company. It can give you a very, very helpful view of the of the company. Yeah, I, I think that's a great point there. And you know, for me, I I think you know a lot of it comes down to I have really good clients and I have a good network of friends who are who work in areas where their expertise and their wisdom is helpful. And if not, they're willing to connect me with um, people who they know are. Um, one other thing, I mean, obviously, I feel like we mentioned Twitter at least once an episode, but Twitter is the ultimate funnel to connect with experts in different areas. 
Um, and you'd be surprised you don't need a really large following in order to reach out to people. Uh, because the very nature of Twitter is you are there and engaging about something you're deeply interested in. So you enjoy and are looking for these types of interactions. So I've connected with some truly phenomenal people who are experts in different industries or companies um, and are very willing and happy to share and talk. And obviously, I'm you know happy and willing to share and talk and give my um, uh, share whatever wisdom I, I can back. Um, I've also found uh, recently in particular in practice who has been active on Twitter um, has a great service that's accessible from a cost perspective to the average person in order to garner wisdom on like a wide range of industries that in practice has done deep uh, interviews with practitioners. Um, so and, and, and the range of inter interviews is pretty broad from like technology companies to airplane companies. Um, you know, and anything in between. So I, I think that's a pretty interesting area where you could get true like practitioner uh, expertise. And then on the slightly more expensive end of the spectrum, I've really found Tegas to be incredible, incredibly helpful. Their vault of calls is truly phenomenal. So buy-siders do calls with industry experts uh, and the calls post into their database two weeks after the calls. And you could be the ones who do the calls. So we've sourced uh, calls through Tegas that have been very, very interesting and helpful in some areas where my own network couldn't get me access to people I wanted to speak to. Um, I want to make an observation about uh, a common trait between what both Phil and John said on some of the first questions. Um, both of you guys uh, basically said, you know, do your homework, go into these calls really knowledgeable. And, you know, that's why I think some of the best questions are going to be specific that are born out of your work um, on a given company. And then something Phil said, I think, is pretty interesting that relates to having done your homework. Um, but when you start a call, I think, I think like thinking through the sequence and like planning a call and visualizing how a call goes beforehand is very helpful. And one of the most important things to do at the very top is ask some questions that are designed to build rapport. Um, and build a rapport with the person you're speaking to so that you could understand there are certain common goals here. Like you're not looking at, you know, insights that'll kind of give color to this quarter, right? I think that's really important. When, when management knows you're there to speak about strategy and high level, I think they're way more excited for the rest of the call. So putting that out there up front with both being explicit and asking certain kinds of questions, I think is very helpful. And so when you think through the logical sequence of where you want to go from there, you don't want to ask your hardest hitting, like toughest questions in the very beginning of the call. You want to build rapport. And I'm not saying go ask softballs, but ask some of the questions that are like not going to lead management to be a, uh, a little defensive up front, because once you put up a wall, that's going to happen later. So when you want to talk about competition and you want to talk about the silver bullet, and what will ultimately, you know, keep them up at night. You know, that's more like middle of the call, maybe the 40 to 60% uh, of your time window, um, so to speak, uh, because you really want to make sure that um, when they have these questions on their mind, um, they've, they've opened up and they've gotten a little looser. So I, I do think there's something to be said about managing the call, uh, in addition to just thinking about which questions are the absolute best. Curious what you guys uh, think about that, how you approach it. But I, I know you clearly mentioned, do your homework up front. That's so huge. You don't want to go in there and have management think like, oh, you know, just another one of these, like, did, didn't read uh, what they had in front of them. So curious what you think. Yeah, I think it's it's super important. And, and I touched on it earlier, but it's worth it going even further into because I just don't see very much of it. And I think it can be a huge benefit. So I, I think there's two kind of attitudes I take into it, which is, you know, obviously do your homework, even though that can be, frustratingly rare at, at times, but I, I take two mindsets into it. One, and it's somewhat of a cliche at this point, but one is to to really think and act like an investigative journalist uh, through the whole process, right? So I'm not trying to, you know, write some expose, obviously. I'm just trying to get to the right answers and, and ask the right questions in doing so. And that kind of brings you into this mindset of both preparation and connecting the dots. And so I, I literally do prepare for calls where um, yeah, I'm really trying to figure something out about a company or an industry like I would be if I were writing a PhD thesis or a long investigative journal piece. I mean, there's some great books written about it. We'll link to them in the, in the show notes. But um, the investigative reporting 
journal. It's been years since I've read it. I used to read it all the time. And the, the author's Weinberg. I'll have to go back and uh, and send a link to the exact uh, uh, book itself on Amazon. But yeah, I think if you come into it with some structure and some thought, as you would if you were actually a journalist, it can really, really help. But then I don't want to come across like a like a junkyard dog. I think Elliot's point is is exactly right, which is that you want to kind of start and do it intentionally, but have it be non-adversarial right away. Like I said, I, you know, I think the more you lay it out in advance, like here's what I'm trying to get out of this. Here's what kind of investor I am. I, I'll never forget the time where um, I was about halfway into a call with a company that I was really interested in learning about. And they, they had me in some database. I forget which one it was, but they just assumed that I was a short seller, <laughs> which again, I used to short stuff at my old firm, but I hadn't shorted stuff in a long time and uh, certainly wasn't looking at it as a short. So I think just laying the groundwork and building that sort of dialogue of like, here's where I'm coming from. Here's what I want to get out of this is enormously helpful. And I, I so the, the three angles would be then, you know, sort of investigative journalist and then, you know, kind of partnering with a, with a business person, like I'm going to acquire the business, but then treating it also like an interview for them. And so you're not putting them on the spot. You're not asking them, you know, brain teasers and that sort of stuff, but really treating it as, you know, a whole uh, collegial warm conversation, but one with some, you know, points to it and edge on it where they know you've done your homework and they know that you're sharp and paying attention and that you want some answers to some specific things for a specific reason. And I think that really does a world of good. Yeah, that approaching it like a journalist, I think is so huge. I want to throw out my favorite book recommendation because it's part of where I got that idea of rapport building from uh, The Craft of Interviewing by John Brady. It's really fantastic. Um, it's, you know, in the mindset of a great interviewer and all the steps you need to take to get a, get ready for, for a proper interview. You know, I started this all with the mindset that I don't want to talk to management because they may be biased. And the more I've started talking to management, the I think the better my insights have come and the better my follow-up research angles have become from that. So, you know, this was the book that, that I think really helped prepare me for that, you know, next step in trying to get better at uh, research. That is a really good one. I'd recommend that book too. And I just pulled the one off my shelf that I was thinking about that I haven't read in so long, but I used to go to all the time when I was a new analyst and it's uh, the reporter's handbook an investigator's guide to documents and techniques by Steve Weinberg. So we'll put that in the notes. Perfect. And I'll just mention uh, one one thought here um, that I kind of struggle with and try to ensure that it doesn't happen, which is that when you're getting up to speed on an industry and you're talking to industry experts, there's this temptation to really defer to them and uh, feel like, well, I really know nothing and they know everything. Because what happens um, then with that kind of mindset is just whatever got you kind of interested in that industry in the first place um, probably was some kind of an outside view, some variant view. And if you defer too much, you can actually get moved toward the consensus view uh, by talking to all these experts. and And then at the end of the day, kind of not really having a thesis anymore or kind of giving up on what would have been a great thesis. Um, so I just think it's important to not be afraid to um, kind of ask the quote-unquote dumb questions and uh, not try to appear too smart. You know, I'm, I, I kind of think back to that uh, Detective Columbo, if any of you guys remember, um, that TV series where he kind of came across as like not a super smart guy, but he'd always ask these questions that ultimately got to the heart of the matter. And um, and so if you have a variant view, you really need to understand kind of what is that edge that you have and, and really listen to the industry experts for whether whatever they're saying changes that view um, so you don't get just moved to the consensus blindly, um, which, you know, if it, it can happen, especially if you look at industries that are really out of favor, because if you have an industry that's out of favor and you talk to 50 industry experts, you're going to be super pessimistic because they're all down in the dumps. They're hating life right now. <laughs> 
And it's easy to get affected by that. So you just need to remember what caused you to look at this now in the first place. And um, so that's just something I'd, I'd point out. Yeah, those are two fantastic points. When I spoke about uh, being a generalist several episodes ago, I pointed to a time where in working on PayPal, speaking to industry experts would have led me like widely astray and that there are certain biases of specialists in a given area. So approaching it with an open mind and understanding where you're coming from and, you know, like critically thinking about what experts will tell you is really important. And that second point about even asking the obvious questions, that's something that in the craft of interviewing uh, Brady talks about. I think it's really, really important uh, because sometimes, oftentimes the answer will kind of direct you on the next steps in your in your process, in your questioning process. Um, sometimes what you'd expect as the obvious answer isn't what you get. And oftentimes when that's the case, that's one of your most important insights you might get out of the entire call. Yeah, I was just going to say too, I I think the, um, the comment about expert networks, I used to use those a decent amount of my old firm and, you know, beyond some of the obvious compliance nightmares that have been caused by those, which have, I think, largely been resolved or mostly resolved, I hope. Um, you know, there's an interesting issue of incentives there because I found just not very much utility from those calls a lot of times. They were often really frustrating. And I'll never forget a handful of times where the supposed expert was just dead wrong about something. And, and it was not clear as to why. So it wasted a lot of time. It was very confusing. So I... Have anything against using them? I think for some very targeted things, they can be super helpful. But I also think they come with a huge risk of building overconfidence, and I think they come with some risk of just sort of unintentional incentive caused bias because they they're being billed out. I think they net several hundred dollars an hour from that for most of those, and so I think it can be um, a little problematic where they want to sound more important and more knowledgeable than sometimes they really might be. And so again, there's definitely use for it where particularly in places where I can't fill the holes in my own network, but it's just always been way more effective for me, you know, to, to just limit it as much as I possibly can to people that are one or two or three degrees of connection away where a semi warm introduction can get me to where I need to be. And I just am very thankful and grateful to just take 15 or 20 minutes of somebody's time, um, to get to where I want to be. And, and I actually think the, I think Elliot was referring to them earlier. Some of the newer generation of those expert networks have been things where they pre-record uh, topic level discussions and go into some domain expertise where I think that stuff is fantastic and can be really useful. Okay, great. Well, um, I hope we answered the, the question. Um, let's move on to Phil for uh, what you have in mind this week. Yeah, thanks. So I don't, have a direct question to respond to that came in pertaining to the podcast, but it was a conversation I was having late last week that really kind of spurred me into thinking about this. And then um, if there's anybody left that doesn't read uh, Morgan Housel's writing and essays, which I doubt there's anybody left, but if not, you should check those out. There's often some really good thought-provoking material there. And, And one of the more recent ones was, I think, titled um, we have no idea what's next. And so it just sort of got me thinking over the past week as you know, we're coming into the end of the year and the holidays. It's just been such a crazy year in a lot of ways. And you would think that if there was ever going to be a time for people to be a little bit more humble about what they know and don't know, that it might be this year. And instead, it seems like over the last couple of weeks in particular, there's just been such an enormous groundswell of this attitude that, oh, of course I knew what was going to happen. It was so obvious. And I've heard it from multiple people, multiple walks of life, you know, not just fund managers, everybody. And it it pertains to just about everything going on in the world. It was like, well, obviously there was going to be a successful vaccine. And obviously it was going to come out right when it did. And obviously the market was going to go up this year as soon as the Federal Reserve you know, did what they were going to do. And of course, the Fed was going to always do that. And, you know, of course, the election was going to go this direction. And of course, this, that, and the other thing. And it was just this incredible amount of hindsight bias and this incredible amount of overconfidence. And, you know, I think it really does pertain to this, in my opinion, the biggest flaw in most people's investment thinking. And it's not just my opinion. I, I will find that 
uh, I'll find the exact quote and put it in the show notes as well, but no less an authority than Danny Kahneman is on record saying that if he had a magic wand, you know, the one thing he would try to eliminate is overconfidence because it just causes so many horrendous problems. And I see it so much in so many different avenues of investing right now that it's it's kind of making me really pause and, and question what the right response is. Now, the problem there, of course, is that if you get too worried about being overconfident and you feel like you don't know anything, you're just sort of paralyzed by your own decision. So it gets back to what for me has always been this amazing push, pull and push in in investing, which is, you know, you need this enormous mental flexibility to, to be able to take in new information and change your mind and update your priors. You also need the humility to admit when you're wrong and to say that the world is big and you're acting with imperfect information. But at the same time, you need this incredible arrogance to say that I know better than someone else or I know better than the market. And so... It, it it's a very odd situation. I'm not saying there's one right answer here, but I think when the pendulum starts to tip too far into either direction. So, you know, on the, on the pessimistic side, it's that, you know, things are never getting better and the, everything possible that's bad is going to come to fruition and everything negative is priced into a security, you know, then maybe it's time to take the other side. And when everything looks really ugly, but everyone's so happy and confident and and the overconfidence is just all in one direction. You know, maybe it's time to pause in the other direction. And I just see that at an individual level right now with so many businesses I look at where um, there's just this amazing confidence that people have pegged exactly what's going to happen with these businesses years down the road. I mean, we talked several weeks ago about a particular company using a 13.2 year um average life for their customers and their lifetime customer value calculations. And, you know, that's sort of an interesting encapsulation of that idea. So I, I'm curious from your perspective, both John and Elliot, if you think I'm being a little Debbie Downer on this, if you think I'm being a little too snake bitten by the insanity of, of 2020, or if you think overconfidence is actually a, you know, it's always a problem, of course, but if you think it's maybe a little bigger problem now than normal. Yeah, I mean, if 2020 has proven one thing, it's that you can't predict anything for the most part. I mean, the world is uh, inherently unpredictable, but this has been one of those like especially crazy times. Um, I do sense like in the market, there's this feeling of inevitability about a lot of things where uh, the reality is definitely not inevitable. You know, what what you get me thinking about more is like high level philosophically, like what Socrates said about, I know that I know nothing. And starting from this angle that you understand what you don't know first, and you know that you don't know anything and kind of approach your acquisition of knowledge from that perspective. To know your weaknesses, to know what you don't know, I think is even more powerful than, um, you know, knowing some things in fact certain times. So I think where people end up getting into trouble is is thinking as fact something that's like, you know, maybe uh, probabilistic. And so, you know, I think it gets back to a lot of what we've talked about in the past too, about being able to make good decisions in an uncertain world, right? We are staring at uh, incredibly unpredictable landscape. And so if you really approach it from the angle of humility and you approach it from the angle of knowing your limitations and your own weaknesses um, and knowing the limitations of the world around you, you're likely to make far better decisions. And I've similarly heard a lot of these kinds of, uh, oh, in, in hindsight, everything that we've seen was like so predictable for whatever reasons. I remember a prominent thought leader on Twitter at about midnight on election night before uh, the outcome looked clear when it actually looked like it was going to go the other direction, perhaps. Um, This thought leader tweeting out that uh, you guys only didn't see this outcome because you're, you're staring at the world with blinders. And obviously that tweet was deleted when in the morning we all woke up and it's like, actually, you know, it looks a little different than it had at that time. (laughs) Um, And so, you know, everything seems obvious to everyone from their own seat. And I think at the end of the day, it all comes down to uh, sort of humility here. Um, So, yeah, you know, I feel a lot of that right now. Um, And, you know, I see a lot of people, one of the areas where it frustrates me as well as a lot of people saying like, oh, Buffett didn't buy stocks in March. Like, what was he thinking? 
It's like, sorry, go back to March. This was not a slam dunk. This was not easy. This was like an unprecedented situation. And I mean, even if you thought it was the most obvious time in the world to be buying stock, I don't know anyone who would have said, you know, the opportunity was going to have gone away, uh, you know, within one or two months. I spoke to a lot of people. I think like maybe one out of 10 was kind of emphatically pounding the table that, you know, I'm going, going all in and this is why. And they got the reasons right too. Um, so I know some people who said they were going all in and their reasons were absolutely wrong. Um, like the virus was going to be uh, a non-issue within, you know, two to four weeks. Oh, you know, if that sure. was your logic, you'd have to revisit it and be like, actually, I was entirely wrong, 100% wrong. Um, but my outcome was okay because, you know, maybe some other things that I didn't think about the right way were right. So, yeah, you know, I've, I've felt a lot of these same thoughts, Phil. And by the way, I will second that endorsement of Morgan Housel, one of the best like his substance is freaking awesome. And uh, his writing stylistically is poetic. Um, so on two fronts, I think he crushes it. Yeah, that's funny because this one, I think it came out a couple of days ago, wasn't actually about the virus. It was about uh, volcanic eruptions and famine and, and that sort of thing. It was about Mount, Mount Tambora in Indonesia in 1815 when it caused the year with no summer because of all the volcanic ash that erupted. And so anyway, it wasn't necessarily about the pandemic and a virus per se, but it was about a natural disaster and just saying we can't really predict what happens next. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree. Like I, and so I wonder though, if I'm just, you know, uh, old man, get off my lawn kind of thing, or if it's that I, I just, I mean, if I had a dollar for every like fund manager that called the bottom in the virus in April, or May or whatever, because we were heading into warmer weather and, you know, we're going to be through this and we've already reached some sort of magical break point in, you know, the, the herd immunity or whatever. And it was going to be, it, and it was already bad in Europe and now it's better and blah, blah, blah. I mean, it was just, and so like all these people were, you know, basically fully invested, which if that's their style and their mandate, that's fine. But if they're making some sort of call, uh, it just seemed amazing to me the amount of confidence they had in a situation where they didn't know anything, um, literally zero knowledge or expertise of what was happening or what was going to happen. So um, I don't know. I think what may be the right answer to this whole, you know, sort of navel gazing exercise that I've been engaged in on this topic is just that overconfidence is always there. It's always endemic to the human condition in most people. And it only gets exposed in years like this one where really crazy stuff hits the fan all at once and sort of exposes the underlying condition that was just always there. I mean, there's just so many opportunities this year for people to expose their overconfidence. And, and maybe that's the real thing that's that's changed. I don't know. What do you think, John? Yeah, I, I think there's definitely amplifiers to... Um, problems that investors have struggled with for a long time, you know, just the presence of social media kind of amplifies, um, you know, people's desire to appear smart and right all the time and kind of uh, saying how they made this right call and that right call when they also made two wrong calls, but that never gets mentioned. Um, and kind of then the emotional side of things. I mean, we all know how hard the emotional side of investing is, and uh, it gets amplified in today's world just by how easy it is to trade through some apps, um, how easy it is to share um, your emotions, not even uh, analysis, but just emotions and cheerleading. And, um, you know, it's just something that you observe whenever the market is hitting new highs, everyone's asking how high can it go? You know, people talking about a melt up. I mean, give me a break. What does that even mean? And uh, when the market is hitting lows in March, everyone's asking how low can it go? And you should reverse those questions, you know, like how low can the market go now? Now that we're at what? S&P at above 3,600, Dow at 30,000, you know, how low can it go? What can happen that could create some downside? I mean, I'm not saying that's going to happen, but I feel like that question is a lot more illuminating than how high can it go? And uh, and then 
you know, just what you kind of touched on early in your comments, Phil, made me think of just people need to have some common sense. And if they're seeing someone selling a newsletter that promises, you know, a thousand percent return, just ask yourself, why is that person selling a newsletter? If they can invest (laughs) that well, why do they need to be writing a newsletter? You know, um, there's literally some ads running for like some guy who supposedly invested in Netflix when it was $1 and Apple when it was $1. And yet he's selling a newsletter. People just need to think about, does this make sense or am I being sold a bill of goods? And But, you know, I, I don't have any illusions that anything we say is going to change how people behave or uh, any of them. I mean, you just need to scan the headlines out there. It's always, gold's going to go to 8,000 and this is going to go to that. Nobody knows. And yet people click on these headlines because if they didn't, they wouldn't be shown anymore. So it's just, you know, we got to stick to our process and I guess the world will do what it's always done. And we just got to try to keep our heads uh, about us. <laughs> yeah, that's a great point. And I, I, Danny Kahneman himself has pointed out on this exact topic that he's very pessimistic about not only his ability to influence or change other people's thinking and process for the better, but even his own. I mean, he's the first to admit that he's a very flawed decision maker and thinker, despite being one of the most accomplished, brilliant thinkers of his generation. And so that, you know, Amos Tversky would be a little bit on the other side of that and say that, no, no, even Kahneman himself has gotten way better. And yes, people can improve and become less biased and more rational. So it's a fascinating debate in it, but I'm with you, John. I don't think we're going to solve any problems on this. I just think it's such an interesting topic and such a, I, I, for me, at least find it helpful to think out loud and to hear thoughts from other people like you and Elliot. So um, I don't know if anything truly productive will come from it, but at least for me, you know, when I, when I see this extreme level of overconfidence, um, it really makes me kind of go back to the basics, like you said. I mean, having that level of common sense and thinking about, you know, in, in basic plain English terms, what you're saying, does it make any sense, um, is enormously helpful for me on a, you know, frankly, on a daily basis, I need to do that. Yeah, I think you guys both make some interesting points there because like, uh, you know, John invokes social media and what you said, Phil, about putting yourself out there. It's a big part of the benefit I get from social media, um, putting myself out there and being vulnerable in that sense. But there's another side to that coin that I think could get somewhat toxic where in being on social media and being active, there's incentive to have an opinion on everything and not just an opinion on everything, but like a polarizing opinion that attracts attention. And so there are certain types of personalities whose very essence on social media is just like a know-it-all who's got an opinion on everything. And when you do have an opinion on everything, when big things happen, you could always be like, look how right I was and blah, blah, blah. But you have so many opinions that nothing effectively matters at the end of the day. It's just like a bunch of uh, you know, nonsense. Um, but in, I think, approaching it the right way where you put yourself out there and expose your vulnerabilities on ideas that are well flushed out, um, that you have actual skin in the game behind, it kind of like forces you to think, um, you know, and, and clarify your own thoughts. People will you know, come at you with interesting, affirming and disconfirming evidence about what you think. Um, And so, you know, I've heard some investors say like they don't like putting themselves out there in that way because it could um, do two bad things. One, it could force you to kind of entrench your own thoughts on what you think and be defensive. And, you know, I don't necessarily think that's true. I think that depends on your personality. There are certain types of people that are a little better, uh, a little more willing to put themselves out there and kind of like change when they see that disconfirming evidence. And the other thing it could tend to do um, is it, it it could force you to engage with certain thoughts that you just don't want to deal with uh, in building your thesis. So like, that's not necessarily helpful either. Um, but I, I, you know, I find there to be considerable benefits from approaching this with a situation of humility. Now, one of the other problems, I guess, with social media is that you'll see on Twitter, like when, when really good 
people, prominent people are wrong on things. There's just this like chorus of uh, anger toward them and of like this, this schadenfreude of like, oh my God, look how stupid that person is. Um, and you know, we, we operate in a probabilistic world, right? So inherently by definition, there are going to be times where our underlying thought process was, was right. And our outcome was wrong. And, you know, it's really hard. Like I, I've said a few times, one of the most important things we need to do as investors is be able to kind of like approach our after the fact analysis with what was I right? Was, was I wrong because my process uh, was flawed or was I wrong because I ended up in the wrong end of the distribution. And in Twitter, it's inherently going to be you're wrong because you're an idiot. And that's not helpful. And that's going to lead you astray in kind of like self-assessing exactly where you're wrong. Um, so I think all these things kind of matter and they kind of like feed off each other. And a lot of it is about having like really good sense of self and being able to approach these things um, in a way such that these really strong opinions and thoughts and rationalizations around you don't impact your core gravity and how you think and how you internalize your own thoughts. Yeah, that's a great point. I, I was thinking about this the other day. I don't want to call somebody out too much. That's not the point of this. But there was a uh, well-known, very supposed expert in in mostly credit and fixed income and commodities and that sort of thing. And people can probably guess who I'm talking about, but that's not the point. I mean, he's very bright in, in every possible way. But you know, I, someone had gone back through and compiled every sort of big prediction he'd made and uh, in the past year or two, and it was, you know, interest rates were going one direction and they went the other and, you know, Trump was going to win re-election and then he didn't. And, you know, the market was going to do this and instead it do th did that. And, and, and even in the cases where there was some discretion in the investment portfolios, um, you know, just some very small allocations to things where there was supposedly such enormous conviction. So I think in that case, I just always default back to, well, one, I don't need an opinion on gold or any investment, frankly, because I want to do my own thinking. But it goes back to Talib's concept of skin in the game. If there's truly just a pundit out there on Twitter, to John's point about a newsletter or whatever, if someone can't even have any skin in the game here, why would I ever listen to that person at face value? I mean, it's just it's just not credible and, and not worthwhile. So that's that's just sort of an immediate one-pass filter for me. Yeah, I'll jump in just with another thought. I mean, if we are asking ourselves, are we susceptible to this kind of behavior? I think, um, you know, ask yourself the question, are you looking to appeal to the masses out there and kind of have the most followers possible, let's say, on Twitter? Um, or any investor that walks in the door, you want you just want to like maximize your AUM, or are you looking to appeal to a more niche, critically thinking audience? I think anytime people are trying to appeal to the masses, they gotta go for that lowest common denominator. You know, you think of politicians, you want to sell a newsletter to the masses. I mean, you are gonna be doing all these things that I think are antithetical to actually engaging with people that can add value in terms of critical thinking, in terms of, um, in terms of learning. Ultimately, it's about learning. So I think playing the long game, being authentic, um, you know, being honest, even self-deprecating, I think um, you know you're going to see those things in in people that I think over the long term you truly admire and can learn uh, from the most. Yeah, that's a great point and something I meant to bring up originally in the context of this um, conversation. Which is, if I have any advice here, it's just to be aware of the power of overconfidence or projecting confidence. I'll never forget. Um, one of the guys I used to work for told me pretty early on when I was a brand new analyst, fresh out of school, didn't know anything. And he had been around enough at that point to say that one of his weaknesses that he knew of was that he was very subject to an analyst with lots of confidence just coming in and telling him whatever and him buying it. And so he knew that he needed to be extra cautious of falling for the pitch rather than the merit of the idea. So he always preferred 
strongly for whatever reason, you know, he didn't want somebody coming in and saying, we should buy XYZ and, you know, but here are the risks and Ham and Han give kind of a full picture of it. He wanted a pitch like, this is the greatest thing ever. This is going to triple overnight. This is a no brainer. And that's, so that was his personality. And he really had to kind of dial back that mode of thinking because he knew that that, I mean, he'd seen enough obviously to know that that was just a disaster waiting to happen. So, um, but I will say this, you know, we've all seen it certainly in politics and it stands out in the last, you know, certainly the last four years, but even really going back to the beginning of time, um, you know, the politician that says, you know, well, here are my policy ideas, but on the other hand, here are the drawbacks that will never get you elected. And and likewise, if you're the analyst that goes into a job interview and you spend as much time talking about your failures or the risks to an investment idea as your successes and the upside, you know, that can be a tough sell for a lot of people. It just is, it takes a very disciplined, very intentional thinker to get out from that, underneath that trap. So um, confidence and overconfidence are a double-edged sword and uh, it just is is really tricky and you just have to, do your best to try to strike a balance. Yeah, that point on confidence and overconfidence. I mean, I'm, I'm sure you guys have heard of the phrase, but there's this uh, phrase like strong opinions loosely held that, that's yep. really popular. And that's tech. a good one. Yeah. And I mean, I, I view that as a double-edged sword because like you're, you're over willing to put out opinions and you're going to do it in the most emphatic way possible and then change your mind quickly. So it's it, it's good that you're open-minded enough to change your mind, but it kind of dilutes the value of strong opinions in a forum where everyone's strong opinions are loosely held. Um, and then you just end up with a whole lot of noise and it's hard to know. But, but one of the interesting effects of having strong opinions loosely held with a large following is you could test ideas that are slightly out there and a little crazier and use the feedback you get on those ideas to kind of synthesize your own thoughts and move to a better direction. So again, it all comes down to how you like internalize your objectives with this and how you internalize feedback and are able to use it to synthesize your thoughts a little further. Like on the one hand, I could see with certain people, strong opinions loosely held is highly toxic. But on the other, I could see for some people, it's incredibly effective in improving their own, uh, their own work, their own clarity of thought. Yeah, that's a great point. Terrific. Well, this has been a wonderful discussion. Thanks so much, uh, guys. And uh, thank you all for listening. Hope you uh, enjoyed this episode. We will be back next week. Until then, I wish everyone uh, a great Thanksgiving and a safe one. Take care. Thank you for listening to This Week in Intelligent Investing, brought to you exclusively by MOI Global, the research-driven membership organization. Learn more at moiglobal.com.